All right, everybody, welcome back to episode two of the Bourbon Showdown podcast, where today we have the living legend, Mr. Greg Metz from Old Elk Bourbon on the program. It's an amazing conversation, and he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to bourbon. It's going to be a great time, so you guys enjoy. Let's get the show started right now. This is the Bourbon Showdown podcast. Hello, Hi, sir. How are you doing, sir? Thanks for having me. I'm. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I'm honored to be part of your show, absolutely. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, how's your day been? Good. Uh, we've got uh, real pretty fall weather. I'm in Cincinnati still, so I, uh, I'm still close to all the inventory that I produce for Old Elk. Oh, perfect. And I do actually do the blending and uh, sensory evaluations and whatnot right from the house and then commute as necessary. But uh, yeah, today we've got uh, beautiful fall weather outside, so it's been great. So you really have like the best job ever. You get to uh, distill your own whiskey at your own house. Like you don't even have to leave the house to do the thing that you're the best at. That is amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, I should take a picture of my basement for you sometime. <laughs> I've got mountains of samples down there. Oh my goodness. Crazy. That, that is absolutely awesome. So Cincinnati, you went to school in Cincinnati, didn't you? I did. I'm a homeboy. I grew up here in Cincinnati and uh, went to uh, University of Cincinnati. And that's where I got my chemical engineering degree. And that's actually how I got started in the business. It was uh, literally, really pure dumb luck. Uh, uh, back then, 1978 is when I got started. And back then, companies actually came to campus to recruit. Joseph V. Sigrams and Sons uh, was on campus recruiting uh, for open positions that they had in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. So, And at that time, they were like the biggest company in the industry, weren't they? Yeah, they were uh, number one uh, by a long ways uh, back in those days. Uh, That's so. awesome. And, and, and before that, like what got you into, like, like if you went to school for chemical engineering, you must have had an idea that this is what you wanted to do. Well, the fact of the matter is I, I really didn't. Uh, I, yeah, as I said, I, I signed on with the uh, to do the interviews with Seagram's. I, I was familiar with the distillery. It's growing up in Cincinnati. I'd obvious, obviously been by it several times and was always intrigued by the aroma that uh, came out of that facility. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, I really didn't know much about it or about the processes. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I interviewed and I was lucky enough to have, uh, you know, gotten a, an offer. But uh, day one, when I walked through the gate, gate uh, down in Lawrenceburg. I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, the only thing I knew was that I was uh, 23 years old and I was going to go work for a company that uh, makes whiskey. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's pretty damn cool. And the uh, fact of the matter is, yeah, that's 42 awesome. years later, it's still uh, pretty damn cool. So I've been very fortunate. It is that indeed. So it all just happened organically. That's like the best way it could possibly go. Yeah, it really did. It was, it was literally an evolution. Uh, so one of the things that, that I didn't know when I joined uh, Seagram's was that I was going to get the best training in the world uh, relative to uh, ultimately becoming a master distiller. So that company, they made you go from ground floor up, right? Like when you joined, they didn't just, it didn't matter what your qualifications were. Everybody had to go through the same process. That's exactly right. So everybody, didn't matter what their degree was, how old they were, who they were. Uh, everybody started at entry-level supervisory positions, and part of the training process was that you went uh, and spent time in every department uh, See, of the facility. That's awesome. Could, could you imagine that being 
in place today? Like, like how much better the work coming out would be if people had to go through and experience every part of the procedure before they were allowed to move forward? I, yeah. I, I just think it would create such a well-rounded employee. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, unfortunately, with uh, the way things have evolved, uh, you know, competing globally now, like we didn't really do that so much back in my day, early days, but uh, you know, companies just don't have the latitude or the time to do that anymore. And and, and like you say, it's it's very unfortunate because uh, you know people just go get the training. Like uh, I was fortunate to have gotten. Most definitely. Well, there's something to be said for just having your hands in it and and doing it and understanding every part of it. That there's you can't really replicate that with repetition of one task. Like doing it all is speaks volumes. And and the real key, you know, the real key for becoming, you know, an accomplished master distiller is, is, is going out and living it. Uh, I mean, you can, you can have all the book smarts in the world, but you actually have to get out in the plant, get dirty and live it uh, day in, day out for a long period of time. And, and the, you know, the times that you learn the most are when the, when things aren't going so well. If you can't respond to something, if, if you've not done it, you're not going to know how to respond to it. That's, 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 it all becomes a wealth of information and it's all, it, it all translates. And you were with them, you were with Seagram's uh, 38 years of your career was with MGP, right? Well, uh, that was an evolution also. Uh, I spent 38 years at that facility. Uh, uh, for 24 years, I was under the Seagram umbrella uh, from 1978 to 2002. Uh, it was, we were owned and operated by uh, the Brofman family, but it was under Joseph E. Seagram's and Sons. Uh, they elected to get out of the whiskey business altogether in 2002. And at that point, Diageo and Pernod Ricard uh, jointly purchased all of the Seagram brands. Oh, wow. And through that acquisition, Pernod Ricard wound up uh, 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 owning the Lawrenceburg facility and, and consequence, consequently had operated that for about seven years. And at, the, at, the, at about that seven year mark, they had acquired, Pernod had acquired Constellation brands. And in doing so, they actually acquired a additional distillery and additional bottling house and really only had capacity for one of each. So uh, ultimately the Lawrenceburg uh, distillery was sold. And at that point uh, we were uh, purchased by a rich gentleman from uh, Trinidad, Lawrence Dupre and we became LDI for a period of about four and a half years. And that's really when we uh, went from part-time uh, contract distillers to 100% full-time contract distillers. And during that four and a half year period is when we aggressively, uh, you know, solicited third-party contracts and uh, really tried to boost our uh, plant capacity uh, by producing for other brands. Plus that, that while you're busy, like it shows worth. Like if, if you're bringing in as much work as you can, that shows during a, a possibly hectic time that you guys are producers and you need to stick around. Yeah, it was actually a very rewarding uh, four and a half years. Obviously it was extremely challenging. I mean, we basically started uh, from scratch and we still uh, were able to maintain the contracts with Diageo and Pernod for the products that they acquired but we still had a lot of plant capacity left over and we really needed to fill that to, uh, you know, stay afloat and be profitable. So we, we were very aggressive uh, 
during that period of time. Uh, Lawrence had gotten into financial difficulty in Trinidad through the economic downturn, uh, and the government wound up taking control and ultimately sold the plant again. Oh, wow. And, and that's when MGP took over in uh, very early 2012. That is crazy. So, so at one point, there was not only a, like there wasn't a corporate takeover, there was literally a government takeover of the company. Yes, yes. So what were you doing for the company at the time of all of this uh, uncertainty? Well, I, uh, you know, I had achieved the master distiller uh, title in 2002. So you were already doing it. And I maintained that till uh, 2016 when I actually left uh, the facility to join up with Old Elk full time. Wow. And, and why the move? Like you had been there for so long. What led you to want to leave them for Old Elk? Well, uh, I actually met Old Elk about seven years ago. So I was uh, about 35 years in my career. And uh, really when they approached me, they, you know, they, they said they wanted me to craft and produce custom mash bills for them. And literally that was my very first opportunity uh, 35 years in to craft uh, mash bills from the ground up and produce them, uh, you know, really on a custom basis. So that's, that's really how the introduction, introduction occurred. And then as I got to know the company and, and the people that own it, Kurt and Nancy Richardson, uh, you know, it was obvious that it was uh, 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 all built on, uh, tr on quality, integrity, craftsmanship, and, and, uh, and tradition quality. And, uh, you know, and the rest of the company was all young, smart, passionate people. I would say in the age, in the age range now, probably uh, 24 to 44. I'm, I'm literally the old goat uh, in the company. And, uh, you know, it, it, the excitement for me was that, that I was going to get in on the ground floor of an upstart company that had all the, all the uh, values that uh, were near and dear to my heart. So it was really an easy, uh, an easy jump to go from one to the other. And be given a paintbrush on top of it. Like yes. they gave you carte blanche to do what you wanted to do and, and they were going to support you and back you. That's, that's amazing. Yes. And, uh, and, the, and the other interesting part was that, that it actually uh, completely rounded out my career. So really in the last three years since I've joined them, uh, as our products have finally come to age and we've brought them to market, I've been heavily involved with uh, uh, marketing, sales, and uh, distribution, and those are all uh, pieces of the puzzle that, that I never had uh, as a hands-on master distiller. So uh, really, I've become full circle uh, as a result of Old Elk. That's awesome. I mean, you get to, like you said, go full circle, and now your hands are in the marketing and the, the how many of these style of interviews would you say that you do? Oh, mercy. Uh, I mean, for uh, we, we we launched our brand uh, almost three years ago, probably almost to the date. And uh, you know, three years ago we were in two states. It was uh, Colorado and California. And then, uh, as of uh, December of 2019, uh, we had acquired distribution in all 50 states. So I was on the road a lot with the uh, sales group. Uh, you know, uh, you know, arranging and getting distribution in all the states. And then uh, this past February, why the virus uh, they hit obviously, and and really put a halt to traveling. So uh, what's really pretty cool is that this whole virtual platform, in my opinion, 
is going to be uh, something really huge born of the virus. And uh, since March, I've done, uh, I couldn't even count them all, but, you know, we've done virtual tastings. I've done podcasts. I've done uh, tastings with, uh, you know, various groups. And I, I would say on average, probably uh, three to four a week. Uh, wow. And, and it's, it's really exciting. It's, it's not quite as personable as, you know, being face to face, but it's pretty dang good for the amount of folks that you can reach, uh, you know, in a timely and in a probably a much cheaper platform. So I, I'm, I'm really encouraged by uh, how it works. Especially with the bourbon has a built in community anyway. Like I think some, one of the things that draws people to bourbon is the fact that one, you're one of many people that are enjoying it. You're not by yourself when you're, when you're sipping. So the virtual aspect of this year has only grown that because now instead of getting together with your three friends, you can jump on and get together with 20 friends or get together with a hundred people, depending on what you're doing. It's just grown that community larger. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, we've, at Old Elk have uh, really taken advantage of the platform and it's, it's done a really good job for us. Oh, the team there is fantastic. Just working with everybody behind the scenes for the past little bit to get this put together. Everybody there is just on top of their game. Absolutely. So you're, you're a very busy guy. You're doing this. You're, you're, you're doing everything else you're, that you do for the company. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not doing what we're doing right now or sipping whiskey? Well, frankly, uh, anything outside is uh, works for me. I, I love being outside. It, it can be as simple as raking leaves, or it could be a, a cutting wood, cutting firewood. Uh, we love to ski, snow ski. Uh, we love lake life in the summer. So you know, if we have an opportunity to go to a lake and, and do some water skiing, that's great. But um, my wife is a, a master gardener, so we do uh, quite a bit of gardening here around the house. So. Uh, again, anything outside, I've, uh, you know, when it turns cold this year, I hope to uh, really get started on putting together a wood shop for the future. Uh, oh, nice. I love working with my hands and I love working with wood. So I'm going to, I'm going to start dabbling in that arena uh, very soon. Very cool. Yeah, we, we built a raised bed garden this year when we were confined to the homestead for, you know, months on end. Uh -huh. Uh, one thing I had a problem with was squirrels. Oh, I wasn't yeah. expecting squirrels to be such a uh, pain in the ass as they were. <laughs> yeah, they can uh, they can wreck a lot of things quick. Oh man! And but for every squirrel that thought he was getting ready to get like a tomato or a carrot, I've got a chocolate lab who was he made it his job to like guard the garden. Yeah. He, uh, every day he would just like march in front of the bed, like just on lookout. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I've got a chocolate lab and a standard poodle and they every morning get up and stare at the bird feeder where the squirrels <laughs> congregate and, and uh, run the dickens out of them. So, yep, yeah, yep. it's good deterrent. <laughs> uh, how old's your chocolate lab? Uh, the lab's a pup. She's uh, just uh, one and the uh, standards uh, just turned five, I believe. Oh, wow. So oh, completely yeah. just a pup, just oh, all yeah. that energy that a, that a chocolate lab has. Oh, yeah. She's fun. Oh, so, we love both, of them, both of them are great dogs. You, you may hear uh, Rocky in a minute. He, he has a tendency to uh, lose his mind if anybody comes to the door. So oh, yeah. Yep. If, you, if you hear a, a grizzly bear barking, that's, that's Rocky. <laughs> awesome. So with, what was your first offering when you, your first release with Old Elk once you came over? Well, uh, the, the first uh, 
project that they tasked me with when they when they came to uh, Lawrenceburg, uh, when I was still working at Lawrenceburg, was they you know, they wanted me to craft and produce a custom bourbon mash bill for them, and uh, and they gave me two words to work with. They said we we want the product to be smooth and easy, and that was it. Uh, so literally, uh, I got to start from scratch, and I was un unrestricted uh, from the standpoint of the cost of the mash bill. And uh, at that point, I really just put my experience to work. I, I knew uh, to get smooth and easy that I had to get the malted barley content way up in the mash bill. And in the back of my mind, through experience, I also knew that I wanted some uh, spice characteristic as part of the conjuring profile. Uh, all the other mash bills that I produced in my career down there always had some degree of rye in them. And to get that spice character to carry over, it takes about 15% uh, rye minimum uh, in the mash bill to, to get that flavor to carry over. So uh, from there, really, it was reverse math. I took the corn content to the minimum for a bourbon, 51%, uh, factored in the 15% rye for the spice that I was after, and that left me room for 34% malted barley. And and that's the highest in the industry right now, isn't it? As far as I know, yes, sir. It's uh, it's uh, probably four to seven times higher than than uh, everything else on the shelf. Uh, and you you created something that really does. It is so smooth. Like there is nothing but enjoyment when you pop open that first bottle. I mean, it, they we've been sipping on it uh, off and on this past week just in preparation for our talk today. Mm -hmm. And it is smooth. It is just delicious. Yeah, it's it's not an in-your-face robust bourbon. It's uh, uh, the the proof was I intentionally set the proof at 88. Uh, we wanted the proof in the premium category, but I didn't want the proof so high that it started interfering with the smooth and easy characteristics that we worked so hard to get. So uh, everything about it was very intentional, and it's it's a gentler. Uh, easier easier bourbon than some of the more robust ones that are on the market you did you created something that is it's got very easy drinkability yet it's complex like it's not a simple bourbon like you get more from it every time you take a sip yep and one of the other things that we do uh, you know really old elk's dna is to be different uh, than everybody else and the other thing that that is we're anal about quality so you know any any product with old elk's name on it it's going to be a world-class uh, product from a quality perspective. Uh, it, it's going to be as good as you can possibly make it and as good or better than anybody else is out there. Uh, we can't guarantee you like the mash bills. That's a very individual personal thing, but uh, quality wise uh, it's world-class, but uh, we take actually one extra step that others don't. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, slow cut proofing process we use. Uh, Whenever you reduce uh, uh, proof from uh, barrel proof to bottling proof by adding water, it's, it's actually a heat liberating reaction. And, and you, when you do it in one big step or two steps, you can actually induce enough heat into your product to drive away the very delicate uh, low boiling point uh, congeners. And what we do to help uh, preserve them is rather than do it in one or two steps, we stretch that process out over many, many steps. And rather than a day or two, it might be a week and a half or two. And by doing incremental uh, additions of water, you limit the amount of heat that goes into your product at any given time. And it actually helps preserve uh, the really uh, high volatile uh, congeners. And, and what that does for the product 
just adds integrity and balance and it, it just kind of rounds the 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 edge of a sharp corner so to speak so uh, it, it's, you taper it off so that it preserves that it preserves the taste and integrity of what you're producing yes and, that's awesome uh, yeah and does anybody else do that or are you guys to your knowledge the only guys doing it right now as far as i know we're the only uh company that's trademarked it. Uh, we didn't invent the process, but we have adopted it certainly. And we've uh, molded it, uh, you know, to the way we like to use it, but uh, we have trademarked it. And I'm, as far as I know, we're the only company that's doing that. And so that explains why it, it is so smooth, but it, but it's also keeps that flavor because of that third step. Yeah, it, it definitely, uh, you know, it's a very subtle difference, but uh, it, it's definitely noticeable. If you were to take a fast cut sample versus slow cut. Uh, I'm certain that you would see a difference That's awesome. for the good, for the good. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So uh, the, after your first offering, um, wh which was your second? Was it the, was, when, when did rye come in is, is what I'm, is what I'm getting to. Well, the, the rye uh, of all the mash bills that we've got on the market, rye is not a custom mash bill, but it's, it's a, uh, a mash bill that we made famous in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. And uh, it's always been one of my uh, very favorites from the standpoint that it's technically, it's one of the hardest mash bills to produce and have the quality come out the way it should. It's, it's the rye grains are uh, just uh, a beast when it comes to uh, mashing and fermenting and still have the quality uh, come out the way you need it to come out. So uh, it, it's uh, the 95% rye is, is similar to the other ryes that, that we produce coming out of the Lawrenceburg facility. But uh, uh, it, uh, what we have in the old elk bottle is it represents some of my best work. And, uh, and that's really saying something because you're known for rye, like rye, rye is your specialty. Yes, I, again, like I said, in Lawrenceburg, uh, as contract distillers, we really uh, made that mash bill pretty famous in the rye whiskey arena. Uh, it's it's ninety five rye, five percent malt, and it's extremely it, it's an extreme rye whiskey mash bill. I mean, there's plenty of other nice rye whiskeys out there, but they're in the neighborhood of fifty one percent rye, and probably have uh, a third cereal grain involved in the mash bill as well. So. Uh, very unique, very different mash bill, uh, which again describes Old Elk. So uh, that that uh, product was really already in uh, my portfolio, and I just extended it uh, to Old Elk as we got to know each other. And you said it had always been one of your favorites. Did it just, and it, because of how complex it is and how complicated it is to get it done right, was it like just a harder puzzle to put together? It was, uh, it, it's, I don't know how to really describe it in layman's terms, but uh, it has a, a, a tremendous propensity to foam when you ferment it. Okay. So you have to cook it right to start with. And we, uh, Seagram's in, uh, developed what they called an infusion cooking process for the rye mash bill, which really involves just taking it to 148 degrees. And there's some protein rest in there and, and such. But uh, after, you, after you cook it properly, uh, you know, then you have to ferment it. And because rye is a very viscous, almost uh, slimy mash after you cook it, very, very viscous. And it has a real propensity to foam. And anytime you have foaming during fermentation, uh, it disrupts the CO2 cap that you count on to keep oxygen out of the fermentation process. 
So if you get foaming, you're actually drawing air into the fermenter, which, which changes the reactions of the yeast as they metabolize that sugar. And you wind, if you get a lot of foaming and you don't control it, you wind up getting very high aldehydes in your distillate, which becomes a quality defect uh, quite rapidly. Uh, you may have heard terms of freshly mown grass. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's generally a high aldehyde content uh, problem in a fermentation. And then there's uh, other very uh, uh, esters uh, sort of go out, outside of the range that you want and it also becomes detrimental. So, uh, you know, through my training uh, from Seagram's and, uh, you know, and, and the master distiller that trained me, Larry Eversold, uh, you know, we arrived at, uh, you know, how to cook it. Uh, we arrived at, uh, we developed or through, uh, you know, uh, fermentation uh, enzyme groups. We, we found enzymes that, that would break the viscosity of that product and all but eliminate the foam. And then uh, distilling wise, uh, you, you can't let those rye fermenters get old. So you, you have to distill them uh, just as they're finishing up their fermentation cycle. If you let them get old, uh, they're going to get sour, uh, and that that becomes another severe quality defect. So, it's just a, a just a very very difficult uh, uh, mash bill to produce from a technical aspect. Uh, the bourbon bourbon mashes are much more forgiving uh, relative to age and and with foaming, uh, mainly because the corn content has uh, germ or oils in it, and the oils uh, have a tendency to knock that foam out. <clears throat> Wow. And, and this has been, this is what you've become known for. Like I'll, I'll, many people would say that you are one of the rye greats, like, like throughout your career, you've been established as the rye guy. Yeah, we've, we've, uh, we produced a lot of really world-class uh, quality rye whiskey down at that facility. And, uh, and really, uh, I, I really took that knowledge and, and really, uh, uh, carried that over to Old Elk's 95% wheat, 5% malt mash bill, which is part of what we're going to, no, we're not going to taste that today, but uh, in, in any case, that uh, wheat actually uh, has uh, similar uh, technical issues with the way, with cooking and ferment, fermenting, uh, very similar to what you would find uh, in rye, and I was able to apply all the techniques that we used on rye to that high wheat whiskey mash bill that we produce uh, the weeded bourbon that you produce is is probably my favorite of the three of, of the ones that we've been uh, drinking on uh it, it is just a phenomenal pour and, and just such a smooth smooth sipper yeah we just uh, brought that out this year uh it's uh just turned well it's, it's over five years old now but we it uh, when i sampled it at four years old it just it wasn't quite ready uh, uh because it's got the the minimum corn uh in the mash bill, 51% corn. It's, it doesn't have a, a real robust uh, characters that the uh, high corn content mash bills bring to the table. And because we're at, at the very, well, at the highest end almost of, uh, of wheat content for a wheated bourbon, 45%, uh, it, it's, it's a, uh, a less robust bourbon. And actually you, you'll get to see uh, congeners that you normally wouldn't see uh, in a in a high corn content mash bill because it would mask them. So uh, I, I would say there's probably good reason why it might be your favorite, and it's because you're probably seeing things that maybe you haven't seen before in in a bourbon. 
I completely agree. It is, it is, it brings something to the table that you've just, you can't quite put your finger on. And uh, very luckily we have you here today uh, to kind of walk us through it and let us know what we're tasting. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I would start if of the three that we're going to sample today, I would start with the weeded bourbon first. Yeah. You want to start with the weeded? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I know you have asked me to, uh, sort of talk about what you're likely to see. And, and I'll just preclude that with the fact that, uh, you know, everybody's got a palette and uh, palettes are like fingerprints. Uh, everybody has one, but they're all different. So uh, there's no right and wrong answer to what, what you think you see when you sample a, a whiskey distillate. Um, so, you know, what, what I'm gonna say I see is maybe not what you're gonna see. And, that, and that's fine, that's the way it should be, but, uh, I'm very glad you said that because so many people get in their head that they're doing it the wrong way and that there's only one right way to enjoy whiskey. I, I, I think it's what you just said. You can enjoy it however you choose to enjoy it. There's no wrong way to do it. That's, that's an absolute truth. Uh, uh, you know, people say, well, you have to drink your whiskey neat and you have to drink it. And it's not true. You drink it the way you like it. Uh, me, frankly, if I'm uh, generally uh, having, a, having a bourbon after dinner, a lot of times I'll have, have it with some ice just to chill it a little bit. So again, it's all a personal preference. And uh, you know, I think some of these reviewers have a tendency to intimidate the consumer. And, mm -hmm. and uh, there's really no right and wrong answer. It's, it's, you, you have to decide what you like and how you like it. At the end of the day, it's your dollar. If you're going to put it into the bourbon, do it the way you want to do it. But relative to, uh, you know, some of the sensory notes that I see in this product and, and, I, I, and even some of the ones that we, you know, advertise uh, in our, our, our sensory panel is probably uh, six people deep throughout, throughout the company. Uh, Kate Douglas, our head distiller out in Fort Collins is a big part of it. Uh, Coral and Leo, who uh, are the distillers out there under her, are part of that panel. So you know, when we talk about uh, products, when they come to market, everybody has input on, on sensory notes and, and uh, you know, what, what we advertise or we expect maybe people might see is uh, uh, toffee or butterscotch notes. Uh, you might see some, uh, maybe a slight bit of clove spice note in there possibly. Uh, I would say you'll get uh, all the, uh, uh, all the, the barrel notes like vanilla, caramel. Uh, uh, you might see some floral notes in there possibly. But uh, again, it, it's, uh, you know, what I see is going to be different than what you see and what you see is going to be different than, uh, you know, one of your buddies that you're, you're doing century with. So again, it's, it's, it, it just boils down to whether it's enjoyable for you. I hear that. So, so when you're swirling it, when you're going through the sensory, uh, you, you've been doing this for so long. Is there any particular method that you have adopted yourself? Like, is there any little ritual that you go through when you're trying one for not the first time, but, but at the start of a day? Well, uh, frankly, most of my training, or really literally all of my training, uh, when I do sensory, uh, is really all about looking for quality defects. Uh, and, and every day we had a, you know, we went to the sensory table or in the quality lab and looked at the products that we made the day prior and evaluated them from really a quality perspective. 
to make sure that they were worthy of going into a barrel. So, uh, you know, when I do century, uh, because of my training, I, I'm mainly looking for uh, off off notes, uh, something that may, may be musty or moldy that would be attributed to, uh, you know, poor grain quality, uh, high aldehydes, like we talked about a little bit ago, uh, which would be fermentation issues. Uh, I, I know uh, a lot of times I'll see dill in, in some reviews and uh, frankly speaking, uh, dill was always considered a quality defect uh, throughout my training. And that was generally attributed to uh, distilling old fermenters that had gotten sour. So, uh, so, so again, if somebody says dill, that's not a good thing. Well, not, not based on my training and, you know, <laughs> I'm, I, and I'm not, I, I you know, I, but I, in my training, uh, we would consider that a, a defect. Yes. All right. So we've, we've swirled, we've, we've gone through our sensory and then now is it time for a taste? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Delicious. It's, it's just uh, so good. It's creamy. It's very nice. Very creamy. It's very creamy. It's very smooth. You get everything you're supposed to get. I, I everybody says uh, vanilla and caramel. I feel. I, I I feel like I get a little bit of the toffee you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. But as good as the as good as it hits the palate, the finish is also extraordinary. Like it doesn't dissipate. Like it sits there and it doesn't go bad on you. Like it 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 doesn't turn to burn. It doesn't turn to anything other than it it just elongates the experience you were having with it at the palate. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. It it, it it's a lingering finish. That is phenomenal. And that is the weeded. Yeah. So uh, the next one, I think, in, in the order of uh, congener profile, we probably should go to the uh, Old Elk uh, flagship bourbon. Okay. So the, the weeded bourbon that we just tasted uh, is offered at 92 proof. 92? Yes. And then the uh, Old Elk uh, high malt mash bill is offered at 88 proof. And again, this, this product was uh, intended to be smooth and easy. So you might want to keep that in the back of your mind as you do sensory and taste on this one. Okay. I like that we did the weeded first. You can definitely taste the difference between just that it's that malted barley. You can tell the difference between the the wheat and the and the barley. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And oh, definitely, I, I get the spice. The spice of that rye comes in right at the end. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in this particular mash bill, again, this for me, I get uh, I get notes of uh, maple, and uh, I, I get maybe some notes of amaretto or almond in there. I can see amaretto. I can. It, it's interesting when when people are talking about what they smell in whiskey, how what you say can trigger. Like a lot of there are a lot of um, oh yeah, me too. When yeah. it comes to talking about what you taste while sampling. No, that, that, there's a lot of truth to that as well. Uh, and, I, and I've always uh, wanted, do you ever mess with people? Do you ever, be, and then you, you, you'll, you'll see here, there's like a hint of, it's Listerine, let's be clear. It's, it's just a hint of Listerine that you're going to get right there at the middle. Uh, I, no, I never do. I, I, seriously, I never do that because uh, I would never want anybody that, to do that to me. Oh, of course uh, not. Of course yeah. not. I'm just joking. No, I know. Uh, but, th but there are people that, that, that do do that uh, <laughs> and I you know I'll be I'll be frank with you I you know when I read some of the reviews and they and they list 10 or 15 different descriptors I I am not that good I, I can't I could never name 15 descriptors out of that product but and, I, and it's I, your product like you you are a master of the craft I, yeah. I I definitely think people are reaching sometimes when they when they go yeah and then I, I feel like if you've got to go you're reaching a little bit in your descriptor. Yeah, but again, I, I when I when I look at it uh, again, my training is is more based at looking at quality issues rather than actual descriptor issues or right issues, but descriptors. When it's such an interesting way to approach it because we're looking for what we see and what we smell and what we taste, and and you're so evolved in the process that you're able to immediately recognize that but then also recognize the part of it that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. like, like I would never, it, it would take me forever to, to be able to pull a, a moldy grain showing up in, in, in the sip. Yeah. And it, and that comes from uh, really literally years of being at the tasting table every day with a tasting panel. Cause uh, and, and the reason, uh, you know, companies have, groups of tasting panels is because some folks see things that others don't. Uh, must and mold is actually one of the harder ones to pick up for a lot of folks. Uh, you know, we used to evaluate a lot of gin when I was made Seagram gin and Meltzer's gin and Heaven Hill gin. But, uh, you know, we would get, uh, at times if the vodka we used or the NGS that we used had some heads in it that would carry over to the gin and, and we had some cows on our panel at Lawrenceburg that could nail that every time. And I had a lot of difficulty seeing heads of gin, but uh, so it, it's always important to have a, a, a group on your panel because uh, people have strong points and weak points and it's, it's always good to round all that out. Most definitely. I mean, like every little bit helps, right? If oh, yeah. you don't, if, if, if you're a pro in this might not be in that it, it's never a bad thing to have another set of eyes or another set of uh, another set of nostrils, if you will. Very true. And now you want to move to the rye? Yeah, sure. Now this one, um, I have not, I have not had this one. I have not played with it. Uh, you being the master of rye, I wanted to have this for the first time uh, with you on the phone or you on the, you on the video. Okay. Well, fingers sure. crossed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bear with me here as I open her up. I love that pop. I love the pop of the top. 
just from working with you guys on this and you sent me some bottles and you were awesome to do so, it just felt like a kid in a candy shop when they came. Is that your every day? Do you just feel like a kid in a candy shop every time you go to work? I'm very fortunate, I, I will tell you. If, I should send you pictures of some of my uh, nine o'clock in the morning sessions when I've got about 32 barrel samples lined up to evaluate. Oh, please do. That sounds will, absolutely I'll, phenomenal. I'll, I'll, get your, uh, I'll get your email address and I'll send you some. Oh my goodness, that just sounds like the best way to start the day. <laughs> and, and, and one of my favorite parts about uh, doing this and talking to so many people that are very good at what they do with bourbon is nobody has, it's such an organic way of life and everybody has just progressed to where they are and gotten good at what they do by loving what they do. And it's so refreshing because so many times people put something in front of them that like they think they want, but they don't want, and they want it just because they're told they, they should. Yeah. I've, I've not seen that anywhere in the bourbon landscape so far. Everybody's yeah. just been, I, I found something that I loved and I pursued it. Yeah. I'll tell you, uh, you know, what, what I've found throughout my whole career is that uh, as, as much as, uh, you know, we're competitors as companies, uh, at the end of the day, we're really all family. And, and I think everybody has the attitude that there's room for all of us. So it's, uh, you know, it is competitive, obviously, but uh, not to the point where people are cutting throats over it. It's, uh, they, it's a very unique business in the fact that people feel like there's room for everybody. And, 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 uh, and that's the way it should be. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been doing stand-up comedy for years, and the best compliment you can get is not when you crack the crowd, but when you pop the boys in the back. Yeah. Like, yeah. We all watch each other, and everybody's in the back of the room, and the best feeling is when the crowd laughing is you doing your job the right way. Mm -hmm. But And I assume it's the same with bourbon. If you can make somebody that does this for a living go, wow, that's exactly. good. Yeah, you're doing it right. Yeah. All right, you ready for the rye? I am ready for the rye. I've I've got her poured. I am uh, doing a little swirl. And uh, this this product's offered at a hundred proof, so it's gonna yes, be a little, it's gonna be a little little stiffer. A good one to end with. Mm -hmm. Oh, just altogether different than the bourbons. Oh, completely, but it's so, it's just vibrant. I, I don't know if you can say that a smell is vibrant. Oh, yeah, sure. But it is completely just. It, it's crisp. It's crisp, perfectly put. And now this one, uh, what was the, what was the profile? Mash, oh, the profile, what you're looking for I'm, in I'm, this one? I'm sorry, I misspoke, the mash bill. Uh, this is 95% rye and 5% malt. So That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. Oh, all that spice just, just, there we go. Yeah, that's, that's the signature. That's the signature uh, note in, in the rye, in this rye is, for me, it's clove spice. Oh, it's just phenomenal. Oh, there's definitely clove spice in there. Oh my God. Okay, the wheat the weeded was my favorite at the beginning of this. Uh oh. Uh, uh by far. Uh I, I I like the I like the flagship so much that I already had uh, a little bit with me when you guys sent me some to sample. Uh, so I go through it pretty often. 
the weeded has just been up on a pedestal for me for probably the last week and a half. This rye just completely took the title just now. Good deal. It is, it's phenomenal. It, it just is, it's absolutely phenomenal. No, the question that I get faced with, which is always the hardest one, is which one's my favorite? And I have mm. to tell them, I have to tell them it depends on what day of the week it is. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Say one over the other. And they're all favorites because they're all uh, entirely different categories. So uh, you, you really can't compare one to the other. Uh, it, they're, they're individual categories. It's such an impressive thing to be able to do that. Like we just sampled three different bottles and each of them had their own unique personality. Yes. If, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back for a little more of the rye. Yeah, sure. It's quite nice. It's yes. It's very nice. Man, that's good, Greg. <laughs> that is, that is. He made my I day. Like I know some people have a trepidation to rye. I think it might just be the spice that it brings with it. But it's so good. It's, it's, it's like second level. It's like that next, next step up when you're going up flavor. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a bourbon drinker, you know, by nature, uh, I, I will say that uh, generally speaking that, uh, rye is an acquired becomes an acquired taste you can't you can't jump right from bourbon to, to necessarily loving a rye whiskey so in, in a lot of cases uh you know rye has to be it doesn't have to be but uh generally it, it winds up being a slower slower uh say um what's the word i'm trying to think of um, you've got to grow into it a little bit yeah 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 exactly and i think it's that it's that robust flavor if you're mm -hmm in the bourbon world and you just jump if, if you go for, if you've never had rye and you jump from the regular to the rye you are going to not be ready for it yeah. like you, you have to prepare your you, you, your palate has to have evolved to a point where you're ready for the flavors that are going to hit you mm -hmm. really and in I, many in many ways it'd be like jumping from scotch to bourbon really it, oh man uh, completely just, you know completely. totally totally different categories, both extremely uh, well done products, but uh, just different. I, I think it's such an interesting conversation. Uh, up north, I was a Scotch guy. When I lived in New York, it, it, I equated it with the cold because mm -hmm. there's something about a Laphroaig Scotch on a, a, a two degree day when you've got like a fire going and maybe a cigar and you're just sitting there and it warms you up. Yeah. But then I moved down south, and now a super peaty Laphroaig on a 68-degree day, that does nothing. Not that, that, it. You're, you're now just red in the face. The neighbors know <laughs> there's nothing fun about that at all. But you drink some bourbon, now you're sitting there, and it's almost refreshing. Yeah. It, it's like it's adding to your day. It sounds to me like you spent some time in an ice fishing hut. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've, I've always wanted to, uh, one of the 
long-term goals is to go uh, up to Canada, do the dog sled tour across the tundra, see the Aurora Borealis and, and spend the time ice fishing. We're, we're yeah. actually going fishing on uh, Sunday in North Carolina, just a bunch of dudes out on a lake with a bottle of bourbon and your fishing rod. Sounds like fun. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, got a little off track there. This rye is very, very good. <laughs> Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you, because there's a lot of people that they write me and they want to know when I'm at the liquor store, it's easy to get confused. A lot of people know the one thing, maybe, especially with your, if you're a beginner drinker, uh, of bourbon, you know, the thing that you liked initially, you'll stick to that probably for months until mm -hmm. you're ready to venture out to the next thing, but then you're stuck. You're sitting there and you're looking at the shelf, uh, I went to Old Elk because I have, had done research, and, and as soon as I saw that you guys had won, uh, the, what was the award that you won, like, almost right out of the gate? Oh, my goodness. We've had, I, like I hate the, to say it, we've had so many that... The accolades for your short, for your, for your, you've not been around forever, and the fact that you've already gotten this many awards, it just, it spoke volumes to me, and I bought a bottle just based off of that. Mm -hmm. and then was immediately impressed and sought the uh, whole selection. But what, what would you tell somebody that's looking to try something new? Well, I, I would say if you're a beginner, uh, I would probably stick with uh, a, a name brand, uh, something like uh, something like Four Roses or, you know, somebody that's been in the business for quite a while and has, has a reputation for quality products. <clears throat> and I would probably stick to... Uh, uh, at least initially, lower proof. So I, I would say probably stay below a hundred, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. between so eighty and a hundred. So you some people jump too high too quick. Yeah, fly and, too close uh, to the sun. You know, when, once you get comfortable with uh, you know a couple different brands along those lines, uh, then I would probably start uh, experimenting with some of the craft brands. Um, and again, I you know if you're going to do that, I I would do like you've done yourself, I would do a little research uh, on your own and, and, and look at reviews to see, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of very high quality craft products out there, but there's also a lot of uh, very low quality craft products out there. Uh, and that, and that same, the same thing goes for, uh, you know, commercial brands. So, you know, any homework you can do ahead of time is going to, you know, to hedge your bet. Uh, it's certainly worthwhile, but uh, you know, it's, uh, going from beginner to expert is 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 a migration, and it takes a lot of time. Don't get impatient. Uh, more than anything, just enjoy it. Enjoy enjoy the route. I, I think those last two things are are a thousand percent true. Uh, 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 be patient and enjoy the route. If you if you didn't like it immediately, give it a couple days. Give it a week. There are bottles that I didn't care for when I first opened up when I, when I was when I was starting anyway. And then you give them, you let them breathe for a little bit, and the next thing you know, it's delicious. Absolutely, yeah. They they do change, and uh, I mean, you, even even with the same bottle, if if you do it neat, if you do it with a little ice, or you do it with a few drops of water, mm -hmm. that, the profile is going to change slightly, and and you 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 need to you need to experiment to see what, what fits you. What would you say the shelf life is once the bottle's been opened? I've had a lot of people tell me different things, and I, I figure if I can listen to anybody, I can listen to you when it comes to once it's opened, how long do you have? Well, if you keep it out of the sun, 
you know, you can get probably a couple of years out of it. Um, really? But it, you know, it will oxidize over time, but um, more than anything, you want to keep it away from uh, sunlight if you can. Uh, it's a gremlin. It's, it's the gremlin of the alcohol world. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and, you know, keep it in a, in a cool climate if you can. I mean, obviously if it's hot all the time where you're storing it, it's, it's going to uh, deteriorate the shelf life faster and it's probably going to evaporate your product faster. So yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot like wine. You just take care of it and it'll take care of you. Very good. Uh, uh, and I know, Obviously, Old Elk is on your shelf. Uh, oh, yeah. what, what, what is your go-to? If, if you're not drinking Old Elk, what, is, what do you reach for? Like, what's one of your go-tos right now? Well, I, I, uh, a go-to for me would be uh, something in the, in the Four Roses lineup. Uh, and a big reason for that is uh, Four Roses was a sister plant uh, to our Lawrenceburg plant while we were under the Seagram umbrella. So... I know that they uh, use all the same uh, tried and true methods uh, relative to mashing and fermenting and distilling. And, uh, you know, also we're using uh, the same yeast that uh, we were using and they actually used uh, three or four additional yeast that we weren't using, but they were all part of the Seagram yeast library. And uh, so from that aspect, uh, you know, I, 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 I can't really speak for them now since they've changed ownership, but, uh, you know, when they were under the Seagram umbrella, uh, you know, they grew up with the same uh, extreme quality standards that I grew up on and, and maintained. So uh, at the very least, you'll know that you're going to get a very, really, really high quality product. And then, then you have to determine, you know, which of their products uh, fit you. I love that. That goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, where, it, it was all under the umbrella and, and you shared information so that their product could be better back when it was with that company. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, you've seen so much over your time. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, every industry has its, its wackiness. Every industry has its weird moments. What's the, whether it be a fan interaction, whether it be uh, something you experienced along the journey, what, what is one of the, the oddest or, or weirdest moments that you've had either interacting with the bourbon-loving public or just while building? Well, I, I probably one that comes to mind first was probably two years ago. I was in an event uh, in Philadelphia, I believe. And uh, toward the end of the night, of course, some of those events, uh, the patrons have, have overdone it. <laughs> at times and uh so it was late at night and i had one of the patrons came to the booth and and just started telling me all about the lawrenceburg warehouses and everything i was saying was wrong and oh it was like wow man so i you know i i entertained it but uh, you know he was uh you know i don't i don't know where he thought he was getting his knowledge from, but to, to try to tell somebody politely that they're way off base and they're completely wrong is, is a challenge. And, uh, you know, that, that went on probably for 15, 20 minutes. So. It's amazing the patience you have to have. It, it, it's you of all people are not wrong. And this guy's sitting there trying to tell you, and it's the same, I, th I think in every avenue of business, there's going to be that one person out there that says, no, no, I, no, I read somewhere. 
they didn't read it anywhere. I, I read somewhere that that's not right. It, it, how did you handle it? Oh, very politely. I mean, as politely as he could take it. I mean, he finally left <laughs> mad, but, uh, you know, I was, uh, what I, I wasn't confrontational at all, but, you know, I, I tried to explain to him, you know, what was, what was correct and what wasn't correct, but uh, it was, I don't know. I don't want to say it was an awkward moment, but it was an off moment. It was right. It, it wasn't easy. Uh, that's for sure. But it was, it's like, wow, you know, where'd that guy come from? Hey, it, it, it's like adding a little bit of uh, water to bourbon. You add a little bit of bourbon to people and sometimes they can, uh, they can open up a little bit too, you know? Yeah. So, you know, by nature, I'm a very humble person and, you know, I don't, I don't go out of my way to, be arrogant or brag or anything like that and it's just like I was trying to be nice and explain to him you know how it's really done down there and he wasn't having it oh, that's awesome and, and you seem like such a genuinely nice person I, I I can picture you just like being as polite as a person can possibly be while still absolutely telling him mm -mm, that's not the <laughs> yeah it was uh it was cute I guess <laughs> <laughs> well uh uh I like to ask, and, and you specifically, I know a lot of people would put you in this category, uh, but I want to ask you, uh, who would you put on your Mount Rushmore of distillers? Uh, I would, uh, I'd have to say Larry Ebersold, uh, and I, I, I'll tell you why. Uh, he's, he's not, I don't, well, first of all, he's, he's the master distiller that trained me, so he, he went through the Seagram training program just like I did. Uh, he, he knows and, and has, uh, you know, used all the tried and true methods. He, he is a very smart man and he's, he's been in the trenches and he's lived it. And he's done uh, a behind the scenes <clears throat> for a large degree. He's done uh, a tremendous amount of work with the craft distilleries uh, uh, through his consulting. He's, he's consulted on I don't know how many, but for, for 10 years or better, he's, he's been consulting uh, on craft uh, distilleries all over the country and teaching them uh, the Seagram ways of uh, how to produce world-class whiskeys. So, you know, I don't know how well known his name is out there in, in the master distiller arena, but uh, I, I can tell you that uh, he's a, a very smart, uh, very experienced man. And, you know, a lot of my success I owe to him because he's the man that trained me. So, uh, you know, I have to give him a, a lot of credit, actually. That's a great answer. So you're, you're obviously your mentor. That is, a, that is a wonderful first head on Mount Rushmore. Who else would you put? Oh, mercy. Now you're really digging. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think... Uh, 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 how about this? Only two more because I'm gonna put you up there with him. Well, you know, I, I've uh, I'd have to say, uh, you know, Jimmy Russell's probably done more for the industry than than. Oh my God! I mean, he make he's obviously a Hall of Famer, so a thousand percent. Yeah, uh, uh, he'd have to be he'd have to be part of that uh, for sure. And uh, uh, you know, another uh, individual that I worked with a lot and. He's not necessarily a master distiller, but he's a master blender. It'd be David Perkins from uh, High West. Wow, that is a very, that is an intriguing answer. That is a solid answer. Yeah, he he 
he, he was a master blender and he was very transparent about everything he did. He created uh, really nice stories for the products that he blended up. And, uh, you know, he, 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 he made High West what it was. So he's a, he's a master blender. And, you know, I worked with him very closely for many, many, many years and I have a deep respect for him as well. I don't think the blenders get enough credit in this game. Uh, I, I've heard you speak before where, where talking about blending, that's how you get your consistency, if, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, you, you, uh, you know, if, if anybody that does single barrel programs uh, will tell you that every barrel is different and they, and they are subtly different. And, and so, uh, you know, if, if you're making, if you're a, a craft distillery, your batches are going to be smaller because your case volumes are going to be smaller than commercial. And therefore the blending part, you know, when you put, when you put your barrels together for what goes into the bottle, uh, it, it's critical that, that, you know, if you're going to try to maintain a, a consistent profile, you know, you, you have to, you have to be very uh, careful about how you put those barrels together before they go into a bottle. Uh, much more so than on a commercial basis because they, their volumes are much bigger and totally. know, one, one barrel won't make a big impact. But uh, if, if you're doing a, a 30 barrel blend and one barrel is, you know, has a, a much higher sensory profile than maybe the other ones. And, and you could definitely impact uh, the whole, the whole batch just with one barrel. So yeah, that's, that's a very critical piece of, uh, of the puzzle and more so for the craft arena than uh, the commercial arena completely like that is such a like it just i don't think people think about that when they think about what they're what they're drinking and where it came from but mm -hmm. there had to be a master hand to build it and there has to be a master hand to uh, blend it yeah. and it's and that's really why uh you know a lot a lot of the work i do right here at the house is is evaluate barrels to make sure from a quality perspective that they're that they're worthy and because if you put one bad barrel in a 30 barrel batch you're, you're gonna lose you'll ruin the whole batch so it's, it's critical yeah well and that's also where the the brand loyalty comes from people understanding that you you take such care of your product before you put it out to the public yeah if if if, if you want to ruin a brand just put a bad quality product in your bottle and, and you'll ruin it immediately quick. yep once a consumer has tasted something that doesn't sit with them the right way, that memory will last with them longer than if you were to show up at their house and smack them in the face. Absolutely. And, you know, one of, that's really one of the beauties of our ownership. Uh, Kurt and Nancy Richardson, uh, actually the founders of Otterbox, but we're under their Blue Ocean umbrella as, as Old Elk Distillery. And, and, you know, they have given us, pardon me, the latitude to wait for our products to come of age before we put them in a bottle and put them on the shelf. Uh, you know, a lot of the folks in the craft arena uh, to generate revenue has to launch their brands early. And that's, that's really can be very detrimental to building a brand. If, if the whiskey you're putting in a bottle, it really isn't ready from a maturity perspective. So uh, we're very fortunate uh, to have the backing that we have through Kurt and Hansi. Well, they let you do it the right way. I, I, I think that would play a, a I'm, I'm sure that played a huge role in you coming over is that it would, you can do it, but you have to let me do it in a way that I'm proud of the final product. Yes. And that, that really goes back to the, the, uh, you know, the traditions and the aspects I talked about early in the show relative to 
tradition and quality and uh, integrity uh, and all that. So, you know, if, if you've got all those core values uh, at the end of the day, uh, you're going to be successful. And, and that, that was, that was an absolute big drawing card for me. And that is the beauty of bourbon, I think, to people as a whole, is that once you find, you, you can taste it. You can taste all of the dedication and all of the, the pride that goes into it when, with the final product. It, it, it really is, I, I think, what draws people to it after they get past the initial, yes, it's bourbon and delicious. Mm -hmm. no, I totally agree with him. Well, Greg, you have given me so much time today. I, I genuinely appreciate it. I, I Just talking to you today has been a highlight for me of this entire experience. Um, I, I would love to, if I'm ever in Cincinnati, I, I would love to just come and uh, uh, Tip a glass with you. Oh, you, you look me up and we'll, we'll show you around. Definitely. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, and Jesse, it's been a real privilege to have been invited on your show. And I, you know, I, I had a blast. It's, it's always fun to hang out with folks that are knowledgeable and passionate about the whiskey business. So, uh, well, I, it's I try always, always fun for me. I, I'm still learning. I, I feel like the best part of doing this so far has been that I've learned something every episode. And I was so looking forward to this one just because you are a wealth of knowledge on what we all love. And I was, I was looking forward to it and it did not disappoint. I've had a wonderful time talking to you. Well, hopefully we'll do it again. <laughs> I hope so. I hope in so. The, in the meantime, salute to you. Hey, cheers. Uh -huh. You put cheers. out a proper juice, sir. Thank you. Now, I'm going to pretend like this interview is going for probably another 45 minutes and I'm going to put on a little bit of blues and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pour another glass of this delicious rye and I'm going to sit here and hope that my family leaves me alone while I enjoy it. Uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Salute. All right, everybody. So there you have it. The second episode of the Bourbon Showdown podcast. We want to thank everybody for tuning in today and listening. We want to thank Greg Metz, the living legend, for being on the show today. Thank you, Old Elk Bourbon, for allowing us to talk to Greg. We know he's a busy guy. We appreciate him taking the time out to walk us through some of your delicious offerings. So thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Please come back. I would love to pick your brain some more about bourbon in the future. We also want to thank Will Jones for providing the music that you've heard in the background of today's episode. He's an amazing guitarist. If you ever get a chance to see him live, please do so. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, click subscribe. Come on back. Let us know what you liked. Let us know what you didn't like. If there's somebody that you want to have on the show that we haven't had on yet, shoot me a message. Let me know. We'll get them on. This has been so much fun to do. It's just a wonderful experience to be drinking bourbon and talking to these great people and having them learn me up a little on what I'm drinking while I'm drinking it. So we appreciate you guys coming on back and listening to the show. We've had a great time. My name's Jesse Jones. Go and find us on Instagram. Find us on YouTube. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Find us wherever everything happens. And uh, come on back and meet us next time. But for right now, let's raise our glasses and kick some asses. My name's Jesse Jones, and this is the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. Have a good one, everybody. Yeah.